Sterling Silver Premium Meats are high-quality beef cuts, perfectly marbled and graded high-end AAA. Let your culinary mastery shine brighter than ever using Sterling Silver. Visit centennialfoodservice.com for details. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Adrian Nyman to Table Talk. Adrian is the founder and executive chef of The Food Dudes. He commits to using fresh and local ingredients, sophisticated original fare, while providing a memorable culinary experience. In addition to The Food Dudes Catering Company, he's also the founder of two food trucks, five restaurants, and four takeout restaurants. Adrian started The Food Dudes a decade ago and rapidly rose to the top of his profession. Originally a home-based operation, the company has grown into a revered, innovative and adaptive hospitality empire under Adrian's expert watch. Good morning, Adrian, and welcome to Table Talk. Good morning, thank you for that uh, introduction. Well, thank you for being here. I know these are uh, tumultuous times and I know you have a lot going on, so we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, in reading that bio, it, it dawns on me that, you know, 10 years have passed since you started Food Dudes and I find that so mind, <laughs> mind-numbing and you know that 10 years have passed a whole decade so it's pretty incredible um can you tell us a little bit about how that all came into fruition and how you started that company and uh and where you are today in terms of the other um business brands that you have under that umbrella of course so i mean to be honest i think it's like i'm we're reaching 15 years now but it was called food dudes court before and i think when i was 26 or 27 we uh, transferred it to Food Dudes Inc. Um, but initially how it got started is I was at the University of Guelph um, getting a degree in hospitality and tourism. And I took the summer to go uh, travel to Mallorca, Spain, at a Michelin star hotel uh, and work there for the summer. Uh, and that opportunity for me really, you know, set the tone for what I felt would be my my career moving forward I uh, I fell in love with the hospitality industry even more and you know I had worked at North 44 uh, during an apprenticeship in high school and I'd worked there for two to three years um, but going to university I still had aspirations of being a hockey player uh, and I guess once I got there I realized I had to start coming up with another option and when I was in uh, Mallorca Spain and I got to learn the whole front of house because all my training in North 44 was back of house mm -hmm. uh, chef training. And I really wanted to learn uh, the whole hospitality business. And when I was working at Reed's hotel, I was not just bartending or busing or, or, or serving. Um, I was carrying luggage to rooms. I was working with the concierge team. Uh, and it was a really uh, exciting opportunity for me to take a look at what I wanted to do moving forward. At that time, I was basically going to a lot of catering events in Toronto as well, uh, bar mitzvahs, weddings, engagements. And I realized that there was uh, a need and a demand for a youthful energy in the catering business. I felt that uh, 
all the caterers out there had been outdated and uh, were lacking passion and innovation. So, you know, I also realized that restaurants at that time for me to work 15 hours a day to make $100, um, as much as that's important in your learning curve, I was really ready for the next step. And, you know, I decided to move forward with uh, starting my own business. And I remember, uh, I'll never forget, I was with my parents and we were sitting around the table thinking about what the name should be. And we were, a bunch of names were rolling off the tongue and I essentially, out of my mouth just came food dudes. And everyone sat with it for a second and, you know, well, you know, is it like high end enough? Is it this or that? And during that time, the food network was really popping mm -hmm. off and chefs were becoming known as rock stars. And uh, there was really a shift in our industry. And I felt that like, Although it was a really cool name, uh, an approachable name, I felt that my plans to do very sophisticated food and with my Michelin training that I could, you know, if we could back it up with really high quality service and, and product, that it would, it could really work. So I started working out of my mom's uh, condo and uh, started getting events to families and friends, small events. And. As the journey continued, I, I, I looked for my first uh, bricks and mortar and uh, Chippies, uh, which is a fish and chip, was a fish and chip establishment that in the annex at Bluer and Bathurst uh, had a back space around 700 square feet, uh, which I signed a lease for. And we started getting a, a few more contracts. We got the Marriott residence in. We started getting boat cruise con uh, events as well, which was a whole nother uh, <laughs> uh, scene, uh, doing boat cruises at, at Christmas time, freezing your ass off. But <laughs> I really had the mentality, whatever it took. And I got a corporate contract from uh, Julie Hannaford, who's an amazing lawyer in Toronto. And we were doing lunch for them for 10 lawyers at Monday to Friday, where they gave me the uh, uh, freedom and creativity to do whatever it is I wanted within a budget. And, you know, the company just kept growing and growing and growing uh, from word of mouth. And from that kitchen, we moved to another kitchen. And from that kitchen, we moved to a bigger kitchen. And before you knew it, uh, we were getting our own commissary at Carla, uh, 24 Carla, that was 10,000 square feet. And by that point, I think I had 50 employees. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, I, I was down in Florida at the time uh, with my wife and we went to a food truck rally. And, you know, two hours later, I purchased our, our first food truck. Are you serious? Uh, yeah, that's kind of how the story wow. went down. Uh, it was driven up to Toronto and, and, you know, people still look at us as like pioneers of the food truck world. And as food trucks being our primary business, it's a very small piece revenue wise of what we do, but it's really humbling to know that, you know, because of how great our food was off the truck and, and, and the brand recognition from being on the street in those early years that people still know us. It's just a food truck company. Uh, even though we do like 2,500 events a year for catering and over uh, 250 weddings, you know, it's, it's always humbling to hear that. Um, along the journey, we wanted to, uh, really diversify ourselves and, you know, prove to people that we weren't just your average catering company. And we really wanted to build a hospitality group. We opened our flagship restaurant, Rasa, in Harvard Village, uh, where the famous Rasa Chop Salad was born. 
uh, along with other dishes like our, our burger and uh, our truffle nudie. Um, it was a chance to incubate and come up with new ideas. And a lot of my staff that work for me, you know, aren't necessarily driven to, to work in catering and we're driven to work in restaurants. So as you grow a business, you know, you kind of have to uh, listen to your staff. Um, from there, we opened also uh, a quick service concept called Pantry, which now has four or five locations, which focuses on, uh, it's a combo driven business, which focuses on proteins and sides. Uh, we have a hot window and cold window, and you can mix match your combo as you see fit. Uh, our most successful, until the pandemic, our most successful location was at Commerce Court, uh, which was just servicing six to 700 people at lunch a day. Um, yeah, and from there, uh, Rasa was doing so well and our team was, was excelling so well at the restaurant. We knew we had to open up another restaurant to not lose any of our top staff uh, or else they were going to move on to other opportunities where they could take on a head chef or, or management role. And we opened Sarah, which is a sister restaurant to Rasa at King in Portland, um, which has also uh, been quite celebrated and doing very well. And, you know, along the way, I actually partnered up with Matt Blondin, who's one of the best chefs in the country, in my opinion. And he wanted to start focusing on a quick service concept. Uh, and he was really passionate about pizza, uh, working with a fermented dough. That was a 72 hour process. And we opened Blondie's, which now has five locations working on at six um, with lots of plans of expansion in, in, in that model as well. And you know, there's been so much more along the journey, but that's kind of an overview of, of, of where we're at and what's going to happen in the last, I want to say, 15 years. So, um, Adrian, the question on my mind is, when do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> no, what it's, you have uh, so much on your plate. Yeah, it's, I would say to, uh, it was a lot harder when we were smaller and I had to do so many things. I think once you build a proper organization up and you put the right people in charge, mm -hmm. you really have to start letting go a little. And I speak to so many chefs and entrepreneurs in the city that, you know, you can't be everywhere at one time. If you're doing exactly. 15 of Saturday night, you really have to trust in your team. And along the way, I, I was so blessed and privileged to work with so many amazing talents in Toronto and, be able to empower them and give them the opportunity to take management and leadership roles. Uh, you know, I also have two kids, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. And I realized when they were born, I, I had to switch my mindset and go from working 80 to 90 hours a week to working 50 to 60 hours a week um, right. to have some, some sort of balance. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I feel I'm well rested now after the pandemic. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so you started obviously all of this when you were very young. How old were you? Were you was it right out of school? Yeah, it was actually during school. I want to say I was 21 years old, um, and then I started doing a lot of uh, cottage events as well. Initially, you know, my biggest client was uh, Deb Fisher and Pat Brigham. They had me up at their cottage, and they had such affluential friends that started. Yeah using me up at, at their cottages and that was a huge uh, piece of the puzzle and after you know a few of the years later that's when the boat cruises and the corporate law contracts and all those other things started happening but yeah it's really been you know I'm 37 now I think I'm in my 16th year of, 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 of uh, being in charge of all things food dudes. 
So with the catering, uh, I mean, I, I love the name and I think what you were doing, establishing yourself quite differently from a lot of other catering companies really actually stood, you know, did well for you. Um, what, what was it about, I guess, with catering, really a lot of it is built on word of mouth, as you said, it's getting in with the right few people and that kind of mushrooms off. What was it specifically that made you want to get in through the catering aspect? Is it just, as you said, because there was something missing in that field or, or was that something that was intentional on your part? You know, I think when I worked at North 44, uh, it's really sexy to work at a restaurant. You know, it's really appealing to work at a restaurant. And um, I felt that working the 15 hour days at the restaurant, as rewarding as it was in many ways, you know, even back then, Mark and North 44 was doing a ton of catering. So I got to look into that field and see what a different business model it was. For example, you know exactly how much you're making before your event even starts, right? You can, you can control, you know, the uncontrollable, let's call it that. And right. for that, that, that was a huge thing is that, you know, being able to control profit margins and labor and food. Uh, as much as things change whenever you do an event and you're working off site and you don't have the facilities you would at a restaurant, from a business standpoint, it's much more lucrative. Um, it's not as attractive. It's not as affluential. But our goal since we launched Food Dudes, why I called it Food Dudes was catering can be cool. Catering can be fun. And um, I would say, you know, and I appreciate you calling us an empire, you know, 75% of that empire is driven by catering and events. I mean, that is our main business. And that's a huge component of it. Yeah, it, it is. And all the other projects along the way are long-term investments, the quick service concepts that, that we plan to hopefully be able to sell one day um, or their passion projects where they're incubators to create like Rasa and Sarah. Uh, and that's how I kind of look at it and kind of how I've always envisioned it. Interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about Raza. It's a great restaurant. Uh, it's really found its niche uh, very quickly in the game. Um, there you can have a little bit more fun with creativity probably, uh, I would assume. Um, tell us a little bit about you know, how many seats and what the focus is and uh, before we get into some other areas. Yeah, the initial name for it was Tabula Rasa, which is actually a legal term. Well, it has many means, but you know, what really means uh, blank slate. And our plan with opening Rasa from the beginning was uh, it actually ended up because there was an, another restaurant, we ended up dropping the tabula and it was, it didn't roll off the tongue so well. So we just stuck with Rasa, which is the essence of things in Sanskrit. Um, and we, we really, the plan all along was to envision like a chalkboard where you could just uh, paint any picture you wanted and uh, constantly change up the menu, working with local ingredients and uh, seasonal focus. Um, along the way, you know, inside there's, I want to say there's 52 uh, seats inside and we have a beautiful patio, which can basically service 40 people, <laughs> which, uh, you know, my kitchen staff will tell you, given the size of our kitchen to, to seat everyone inside and outside on, on a summer night becomes challenging, but um, Luckily, we have such uh, skilled staff and uh, that are up for the challenge and are extremely ambitious. But uh, the menu, how it essentially works is there's 15 savory dishes and, and three sweet dishes. 
on the menu, there's uh, uh, five staple dishes. You know, along the way, we felt that we could have kept all the dishes on the menu. And some restaurants really do that. They're just, they do what they do really well. And people keep coming back for those dishes. And right. my, my approach and my thought process all along was, well, you know, we got one of our pastas now. We got a signature salad, which is 20% of our yearly sales. We have. Um, Are you serious? Wow. Yeah, every table basically gets it. Um, the burger got rated by Toronto Life, one of the best in, in the city. So that was a hard one to take, take off. It's also pretty different from a lot of burgers in the city. Um, and, you know, we realized pretty early on that as although we create such great food and we could leave the menu alone, we really wanted to only keep five staple dishes on the menu and then rotate eight to ten. Uh, seasonally and you know uh, it's comprised of five vegetarian five meat and five fish um, and our team uh, my, my head chef Davin Scherer and I work very closely with our sous chef Corey there on on the menu changes twice a year it used to be four times a year it became too difficult and given the seasons in Toronto it's not like you live in California where you have this readily available endless amounts of, of, of vegetables. So we found by changing our menu up twice a year was, you know, uh, a few changes along the way, obviously, if we're not happy with a dish, but that's kind of the focus there. Okay. And, and so when I look at the past year and everything the industry has experienced with COVID-19, um, your business with the various different um, aspects of it with, you know, the food trucks, the catering, and then the restaurants, all of that has been impacted in a huge way. How did you deal with COVID? What, what did that do to your business and, and how you moved forward? I did an article uh, a couple of weeks ago in Toronto Life um, where it was really nice. Like I, I, the writer basically let me tell my whole story and experience over the, like the last 14 months. And even had the article written by me, which was, which was really humbling and appreciative. And they, they didn't really mess up any of my words or change too much of it. And I was very grateful to, for Toronto life to speak on that platform. And, you know, I basically told the whole story of, of, of what happened and for us, and I don't think people realize this, um, you know, as much as restaurants have taken a huge, what's the right word? Uh, slacking, <laughs> uh, destruction. You can use every word under the sun for this pandemic. Yeah, Definitely. I just got absolutely hammered, hammered the last 14 months. You know, there was an opportunity last summer for patios to reopen. And uh, in the event business, nothing's really, we were able to do like 25 person events, but just so people understand, it's a volume business to, in catering. You need to be doing hundreds and hundreds of people uh, for those higher profit margins, as I mentioned earlier, to exist and, you know, to do all that work for 20 people events, you know, people would give us a deposit, for an example, for a 200 person wedding. And they would then move forward because they want to get on with life. It's not their fault. They want to get married. They want to have kids. They want to move into their house. Sure. So they end up, unfortunately, having to, uh, to get rid of 80% of their, their, their invites and move forward with the wedding, but 
we would do these weddings and owe them money back because we take a 25% deposit and the revenue wasn't even 25%. So uh, it put us in a really tough uh, position. And my business partner, Lindsay Klein, did an amazing job. She's the CEO of Food Dudes and Pantry. And she did an incredible job uh, helping me manage the bank account and the cash flow during that time. But I would say the event industry was absolutely just crumbled the last year mm-hmm. and there's been no talk this year of even when things are going to return back so even weddings we had scheduled for 2020 are now moving to 2022 because Incredible. a lot of people right so that was one component of it and you know what we did right off the hop was a launch something called from scratch to go we were initially told that that, that the medical world was going to be overburdened and uh you know have from what we saw in New York City and in Italy, right off, if we remember, that seems like years yeah. ago. But, uh, and so we wanted to create a program that was going to help the medical uh, workers. Um, and, you know, the Toronto community supported us so much. And I'm so grateful. And we were able to help out a lot of the medical workers. But as we were dropping off a lot of orders to hospitals, we realized that, like, um, at that point in time, And eventually it got obviously really hairy and and scary at at the hospitals. But, you know, they luckily were not being overburdened as much as we all anticipated. So we realized we had to kind of come up with a new concept for Food Dudes. And we came up with a concept called FARE, F-A-R-E. And it's it's an experiential concept where we do gifts. So we do breakfast in bed. We do date night. We do dinner party. We do celebration of love at valentine's day we did a mother's day campaign we're going to do a father's day campaign we did a movie night um realizing that people were at home and they were bored and they were looking to be able to give gifts to other people uh great idea uh, you know yeah we live in the amazon world now right so uh, and along with that we offered groceries realizing that people probably didn't want to cook or if they did want to cook maybe they wanted some of our famous uh condiments like our jalapeno feta spread so we launched fair and uh, we launched that in the fall and that that did and has done extremely well. And our team at Food Dudes has done an incredible job with that. Um, are you promoting that through and, social media, Adrian, or how are you bringing that out to people? We did. You know, we've been luckily Blog TO and Taste Toronto and so many uh, great publishers in the city really have supported us and my peers during this time. So it was really easy to be able to get it out there. And uh, Rasa... Uh, we opened takeout right away. Like, well, not, I want to say every restaurant, a lot of restaurants took time and break because they've been on the hamster wheel for God knows how many years. Um, uh, So we did takeout for, for basically a year and it was the last lockdown that we decided to basically listen to our staff and say, we're going to give them a 28 day break and start being able to do their own concepts and pop-ups that they wanted to do at Rasa, uh, which, uh, has had a lot of success and given them the opportunity to be creative and innovative. And uh, we have no plans of doing takeout anymore at at, at Rasa. Uh, It's a fine dining restaurant, um, you know, that focus on, uh, on uh, people being able to come in and socially dine and enjoy food that we put in front of them. Um, You know, our Blondie's business absolutely skyrocketed. The pizza business skyrocketed up 25, 30% during the pandemic, which was an amazing uh, blessing for us. And, you know, other than that, that's how we've kind of made it through the last year is 
I just feel that the government, and I mentioned this in the article, hasn't given us any consistent leadership, you know, to open and close, open and close. If you look at places that had success in the world uh, with lockdowns, they really did a hard lockdown. And when they opened up, they opened up and they didn't keep opening and closing. And that's right. I think really disheartening for our industry and just for, 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 for citizens of Canada. So Adrian, when I heard that you were closing Raza, like to take out, you know, that was pretty, that's pretty dramatic. And I, and I understand what you're saying. It's not really, obviously it's not as, uh, as fun as doing your regular restaurant, but that was a pretty big step. Did, did you think about that for a long time or did you just get fed up one day and said enough of this, I'm not doing it? What prompted that? For me, it was about listening to our staff and, uh, it definitely was. I think the word dramatic is spot on. Um, my business partner, Adam Minster, who's been, uh, you know, steering the ship at RASA for the last, well, he's been my partner all along, but, you know, during the pandemic has really uh, uh, done everything he could to help us survive. Restaurants like RASA don't have a lot of money in the bank account. Like, it's not like. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How did you survive through the year? Well, luckily, the first lockdown, the takeout sales were amazing. Um, but once you give that commission to Uber, uh, and depending what the deal is you have with your landlord, until they started giving us the rent break subsidy through the government, um, there were a ton of things to consider. And we're not a business that likes to get into a ton of supplier debt. We always pay everyone first and make do with what's left. Um, but, you know, the decision was Adam spoke to our, our chefs and you know, the verdict was pretty clear that they were sick of doing takeout. We had spent 15 days after they said that we could reopen our, our, our restaurant, cleaning, getting it ready, working on our new seasonal menu. And the team just felt pretty deflated after that. And we felt it was necessary to give them a, a, a break for uh, their mental health mm-hmm. and their physical health. Um, and when we looked at the bank account and ran the numbers, unfortunately, delivery just wasn't the second time around with the lockdown we were barely holding on you know I recognize that people that have supported us during this last year might have taken it like well this isn't fair to us we've been supporting you and uh and I apologize to those people uh I we like are so gracious for the support the overwhelming support they gave us but Ultimately, we have to listen to our staff and our Mm -hmm. staff wanted to take a break and start exploring other things. And we felt that this was the right opportunity to do that. And we had also hoped that it would only be for 28 days and that uh, we were going to be reopened. So I'm confident that mid-June, they'll they'll allow patios to reopen and, and, and that they'll allow indoor dining to come back, hopefully in the late summer, early fall, and we'll never look back. But I will say that from making that dramatic stand, we were overwhelmed with the amount of publicity we've gotten by that decision. And, sure and that's been a huge benefit. And I think most people have understood. There's some trollers on uh, online, which I'm sure have different uh, opinions of it. But I think it's important that you make a decision that uh, you stand behind and we stand behind our staff and we listen to our staff and they're the driving force behind what we do. So when we take that into account with the business and financial aspect, it was quite an easy decision in the end. So we're anticipating that June 2nd, this current stay at home measure will end. And hopefully 
there'll be some semblance of, uh, of normalcy back, maybe with some reopenings of patio, as you mentioned. What are you doing to plan for that now? I mean, are you are you anticipating that patios will will be quick to open after June 2nd and then you're going to focus on that? Um, or are you still going to continue doing some of the takeout when you go back? What's the plan? Um, the plan will be as soon as they lift the lockdown to get back at it as, as quickly as possible. I just hope this time around they're not like, all right, in 48 hours you can open your patio. <laughs> yeah. As much as that benefits uh, people that are dying to go out and support restaurants and patios, anyone that takes pride in what they do, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, and we've been here before where like they've told us one thing and then another's happened. So we're going to do the same thing we did last time. Once they announce the reopening, we're, we're going to make sure that as soon as our staff are ready and as soon as our menus are ready and as soon as our establishments are are ready to, to reopen. We spent a lot of time during this lockdown redoing both patios and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, getting every, uh, like all the flowers blossoming. Um, Mia, who's been a long-term employee of ours at the restaurant, uh, has been sending us videos of, of, of uh, you know, all the flowers that she's been planting for us. And uh, we're extremely grateful for that. And our dishwasher, Tony, who's been with us for a long time, has been fixing up our patios at Rasa and Sarah. And, you know, so we are doing stuff now to stay active and busy. Uh, I just, you know, even if they say June 2nd, patios reopen, it's still going to take us probably a week or two to, to make sure that we're fully ready to reopen and, and train our staff properly on the new menu and get people back in the right mind state, because that, that's an important uh, piece of this puzzle as well. For sure. Getting people back to work in a normal environment is, is a huge undertaking in itself. I, I, I wonder with um, even when things return, hopefully after June 2nd to some kind of opening, I would assume the catering business is still going to be on hold for quite a long time, given that we probably won't be able to have large group meetings for a while. So are you just putting that on hold for the rest of the year? Do you have a sense of that? Uh, for us, you know, we've been talking about it a lot uh, with our, our executive team and, and our, our partnership group. We're, we're assuming that last summer they allowed, uh, I think it was 50 to 75 people in Toronto outside and uh, 25 inside. And then outside of Toronto, the numbers were slightly larger than that. So we're going to go off of the basis that it'll probably be similar to last summer and the trend that we're seeing with people booking events uh with us is you know late fall early winter and next summer is just gangbusters uh because and i don't blame people but i think they're they want to make sure that after they've rebooked their wedding three times that uh that this but we got to assume by next summer that we'll be able to do weddings for 200 plus again. And uh, we, we control the Honda Indy uh, contract, the food and beverage for that. Um, and uh, the food and beverage contract at, at hotel X. And, you know, we've seen weddings being delayed and pushed back at the hotel and the Honda Indy has had to cancel their uh, um, event again this summer, which is crazy because it's an outdoor event, fully outdoors. Um, I just, I, I really don't understand certain things about the government's choices 
Um, but obviously they're getting medical advice and we have to trust that medical advice and, and trust in our government that they're making the right decision for us. And I'm one of those people that believe that that, that is the case. Um, and, you know, uh, as frustrated as that is for us as entrepreneurs and, and business leaders and, and, and hospitality uh, workers, you know, uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. You can see what's happening in the States right now. Um, and how they're opening back up and, and hopefully we follow suit. So you're in the States right now, right? Yeah, I'm currently in uh, Miami, Florida. So give us a little bit of a peek into how things are there. I mean, I see obviously reports on TV, people are back at sports events, they're going out to restaurants. What's it like there? You know, everybody thinks that it's completely crazy here. Um, like, I must say that Things are fully back open. Um, restaurants, people, 200 people plus in a restaurant having having Incredible. dinner. Yeah, which is really nice to see. A lot of people aren't wearing masks, but a lot of establishments, once you go to the washroom or go to your table, are still enforcing wearing masks. Um, I've seen some people get in some arguments where they said, well, our president said if i am got my vaccinations, I don't need to wear a mask. And right. And then the establishment will say, well, uh, you know, this is what we're comfortable with and, 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 and mask wearing is still important. So it's actually really nice to see. It's nice to see things opening back up. It's nice to see events happening for, for over 200, 300 people. Uh, I think that's why they signed Formula One to come here next, next year because, you know, they're aware that... Uh, Miami is probably ahead of the curve of most, most other places. Like you even look at New York and LA and there's still a lot of restrictions in place there. Um, but I will say I was at a Starbucks the other day and, and they, they, they still aren't allowing indoor seating there. So yeah, I think it's, I think there, I, I definitely think that it's, they're still a lot more safe than people think, think here. It's not as crazy as everybody thinks. It's not the wild, wild West. It's, you know, but they are much more open and it's really nice to see the smiles on people's faces. And for me to be able to eat at a restaurant, I, I don't take it for granted. Um, uh, I realize how many people back home who haven't been able to leave Toronto at all. Uh, either they have a young family or for work reasons or because of quarantine or they just don't feel comfortable because of the virus. Um, you know, uh, for me, me and my family actually had coronavirus at, at Christmas time. And oh, did you? It, wow. Yeah. And it was, you know, it, it's as advertised the virus. Um, and I don't think if I hadn't have had it, uh, that I would feel as comfortable to travel afterwards. So I don't blame people who haven't had it uh, for not wanting to travel because it really sure. sucks. <laughs> I would want to be in the comfort of my own home as opposed sure. to traveling abroad. So I recognize that for sure. Well, we all look at those uh, scenes in the States and we're, we're envious, you know, of uh, getting to that point very quickly here, which will be a few more months. Adrian, you're, you're very entrepreneurial. Obviously, you started your business when you were very young and you're always looking for new ideas. Has COVID changed that entrepreneurial zeal? Are you still looking for more businesses to, to start up and to add to your empire? Or has that made you a little skittish? You know, I, I've kind of gotten frustrated with, uh, like I've seen a lot of entrepreneur, entrepreneurs 
trying to build pandemic proof business models, thinking that the world's never going to return and call me an optimist, but I feel things will return back to normal. Uh, I'm not someone that's ever going to slow down uh, or stop uh, moving forward. I owe it to myself and the vision I had for my business. I owe it to my team. And, you know, the main reason I'm down here in Miami, Florida right now is to continue uh, my dreams and my aspirations and to build, continue building out my business and give, give my staff who have worked so hard for me opportunities. And uh, so the answer is I, I fully intend to continue the journey. I'm not so sure how many more, uh, businesses I want to start from scratch I kind of want to grow my existing brands and, and see them through as opposed to keep launching new ones uh, we do have one more concept we definitely want to launch but other than that I, I'd rather see there be a rasa somewhere else I'd rather see blondies expand pantry expand you know food dudes catering launch in another market and, you know, I think once you have proof of concept and once you've created as many successful brands as we've been fortunate enough to do, you know, you don't necessarily have to keep creating new stuff. Uh, you can just, you know, open up in other markets and, and explore the world. And, 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 and that's kind of where I'm at right now. I, as I mentioned, I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old. I definitely want to uh, focus on spending a lot of quality time with them. Cause I realize how quickly uh, it, it goes as, as my parents have, but I'm never going to stop growing and evolving and being entrepreneurial. It's in my blood and it's who I am. So would you ever consider expanding one of those concepts outside of Canada? I think that that's already in the works and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm very exci excited to, uh, to announce some really awesome partnerships coming up soon. Excellent. So you can't get to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I can't drop it on this podcast, unfortunately. All right, all right. I tried. We are, <laughs> <laughs> we are working towards that, uh, but nothing's been finalized. And it is important to make sure that we, we ground ourselves in Toronto again and get things back to where we were. Uh, but we definitely have, uh, have plans of expanding outside of Toronto and outside of Canada. So Adrian, in our conversation, you've mentioned your staff quite a few times and you know how lucky you are to have such a good team and giving them opportunities to grow within your, within your company. How have you found that the pandemic has changed your leadership style in, in terms of how you also deal with, with your staff and your team? Have you found that that's had to change dramatically over the last year? You know, it's a great question. I actually found even before the pandemic, there was a shift, at least in my life and also with my staff, where people that had worked with me, business partners and uh, long-term employees were starting to leave the company. And I found that it was like they were leaving me. You know, when someone leaves your company, you, you take it so personally. And of course, uh, what I really learned is, and then obviously the pandemic hit and we had to lay off over 200 employees and that was just devastating for us. Uh, um, but I've really learned to, you know, control what we can control and, and disattach myself from my businesses, realizing that things aren't done personally because of me and uh, everybody has their own dreams and aspirations. And if I can help inspire people to either go start their own business uh, or to uh, go on to do something that, would make them happier, then, you know, 
I've learned through this pandemic to really let go and to accept that, you know, as much as when one door closes, it's difficult, another one does open. And in a lot of cases, when people have left that have been such important employees to the company, and I've been like, well, how am I going to continue to grow? And how are we going to continue on without them? It always finds a way of working itself out. And uh, looking back in every situation, those staff members or partners are happier where they are now. And, and uh, I'm, I've been able to give new opportunities to people that ha have been better fits for the company. That makes sense for sure. So um, in, your, in our discussion, you mentioned, you know, when you first got into the business, you were working a lot of hours and you really, you know, didn't want to be working as many hours as you were. There's so much talk in the last year about how the restaurant industry is broken to some degree. And I think the pandemic gave us all an opportunity to see what some of those weak areas are. Um, how do you think moving forward, the industry can improve and start fixing some of those um, areas that are cracked or, or the flaws that exist? Um, what can be done to fix this industry moving forward? You know, I actually, you know, to echo my last point, I also, I think this was something that was happening before there was the Me Too movement. And then after the Me Too movement, uh, which was a definitely an important movement, you know, to have happen because, you know, since then there's been so many more dominant females being empowered and as they should, like... <laughs> I always say that, like, I love surrounding myself with female energy and uh, from a business standpoint there, you know, uh, I learned so much uh, from females and males, uh, <laughs> but I think that it's, it's, I think that that had to happen. But after that happened, I started to see that the hospitality industry, you know, had a big shift. There was the Mario Batali fiasco. Uh, there was a bunch of other fiascos that took place that centered around the me too thing, but mm -hmm. also centered around their staff, not being tipped uh, properly or not being uh, financially compensated properly. And, you know, we had meetings with our staff and our executive chefs at, at, uh, at, at the restaurants and in catering and really wanted to find a way to, to get their hours down uh, mm -hmm. to not working 60 hours a week and working, you know, 45 to 50 hours a week. Uh, and in slow season, only working 35 hours. So in a year, it, it averaged out. And right. what we could do from a tip perspective to get them paid more. And, you know, I've looked at what Jen Ag has done in, in Toronto to take care of her staff. Um, Patrick, Chris, you know, and we all talk about what can we do? Grant Van Gameren, uh, Craig Harding, all these guys are my friends. And and Janet Zuccarini, we all talk about what, what, what can we do to, to really uh, uplift our, our employees that, that are the drivers behind our business models. And I do think that the shift has to continue to evolve. You know, there has to be a better work-life balance. Maybe it's taking some dishes off of your menu so the prep load isn't as long, uh, mm -hmm. as, uh, as, as daunting. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, finding a new uh, uh, model like if you look at what happens in europe some some restaurants don't accept gratuities and they pay a higher hourly wage the issue in canada and toronto is 
we only get really one and a half seatings at our restaurants. People like to eat between seven to nine 30. That's right? right. Everybody wants to eat at the same time. We're in Miami. We're getting kicked out of our tables at 10 30 because there's an 11 o'clock reso coming in, right? <laughs> like that doesn't, make, yeah. that doesn't exist in Toronto. So that's part of the issue as well. Um, so it's really trying to find a, a better work-life balance and, when we schedule our staff on seven shifts now, we actually set the hours we expect them to work to make sure that they don't go over and and make sure that they're paid uh, fairly and to make sure that uh, they can evolve and grow with the company. And that's something that we've always done and will continue to do. But I do feel that there does have to be a shift either on what we charge and people be willing to pay a bit more for a steak or for a salad, realizing that it's not more money in the restaurant's pocket. It's, it's more money going to the staff because we're kind of getting it from all angles right now. Uh, beef prices are going up. Produce prices are going up. Dairy prices are going up. Yeah. Uh, I can guarantee you after all the loans that have been given from the government, corporate tax is going to go up. HST is going to go up. Uh, th there might even be a, a COVID tax they've talked about. So we really have to pay close attention to to, to what those tariffs are moving forward and, and what we can do to give our staff a better work-life balance because, you know, it's important. And you see so many people leaving the industry because, you know, they just are, are tired of working so many hours uh, for so little amounts of, of income. So it's our job as leaders in the industry to keep finding ways to, to make that better for them. You talk about the Me Too movement before the pandemic and what that did to create more exposure for women in the industry. How about the whole Black Lives Matters movement uh, last year? I mean, what has that done uh, for restaurants looking to remove some of those barriers? Once again, I think it was a very important uh, movement to happen. Um, and I have so many people, including myself, that are doing things behind the scenes and not posting about it on Instagram. And I think like that's the most important thing mm -hmm. is I, social media, you know, I think posting a, a black square is amazing. It shows you stand with the movement and that was a beautiful thing. But I think what's more important is what are you actually doing to create better equal opportunities uh, for black lives and not just black lives, but all lives. Mm -hmm. Um, um and I think that what's happened in the States and around the world, because it's not just happening in the States, it's happening everywhere, uh, it is, is heartbreaking and it's not fair. And I think that it's our job, once again, as entrepreneurs and business leaders to, uh, you know, create opportunities for people that are less fortunate than us and to tr create everyone as equal uh, when it pertains to a job when it pertains to uh, respect on on police police brutality, I mean the numbers you can't you can't deny. I'm someone that looks at stats, and it's mind-boggling to me. Uh, you know uh, what takes place, and it it's truly saddens me and is devastating to me. Uh, but once again, I do feel that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I feel that the verdict that was hand, handed out in that George Floyd case was was a step in the right direction. Um, but focusing on business and not my personal views on the matter, which stand 100 uh, percent with Black Lives Matter. Uh, but focusing from a business standpoint, you know, 
we've always looked at it and we have lots of staff that work for us where, you know, we don't look at it as the color of your skin. If, if you've earned the job and you've earned the opportunity, we've always wanted to uplift our staff um, and, and never look at it from, from a place of color, but from a place of who's earned this opportunity the most. And that's always been at the, like just how I was raised by my parents and, and how I see things and how my company sees things and those that work for me. So I think it's more about not just doing a post on social media and moving on with your life. I think it's about, you know, either creating, uh, you know, something to truly help the movement and be a part of it in any way you can and do it for the right reasons, not to just get uh, validation for it. Right. So Adrian, as, as a way to wrap up our discussion, because I know our time is running out, um, the, this past year has taught all of us so many different lessons. And you touched on some of those earlier, but what has it taught you, I guess, mostly about yourself? I think, you know, for me, uh, when everything's been taken from you, uh, by no reasons, like by things out of your control, where there's nothing you could have done to stop it, mm -hmm. you really kind of have to surrender to the situation. You need to have an open heart and an open mind. And you need to, to be there for your staff. And as a leader in the hospitality, uh, you know, uh, world uh, or industry, I should say, uh, it's my duty to, to stay strong. And we've pivoted so much during the last uh, 14, 15 months. And I'm so proud of my team that stuck by me during this time. Uh, I owe it to them after this to... to to continue to uh, inspire and give them greater opportunities that will lead to not just financial growth, but, you know, personal growth. And I, I, I think you really just have to surrender to the situation and realize some things are out of your control. And this time around, let's not take it for granted when we go to a stadium or we go to a concert or when we eat at a restaurant. And when I've been down here in Miami and I, I sit down at the restaurant and the server comes up to me and although they're still wearing masks, you know, the fact that I can be eating at a, at, at a restaurant again, I'm truly grateful. And I think we all have to show gratitude and there's no need to be frustrated. No one's more angry or frustrated than I am. I've done a lot of work on myself this last 15 months. Um, and I look at people that are in way worse situations than us that, you know, aren't going to be able to reopen their restaurant or aren't going to have a job to go back to. And that really, you know, those are the people that I want to fight and stand up for, uh, realizing that we're the lucky ones and that as, as hard as it's been on us and as, as big as the swings have been, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are in a way worse situation and we have to do everything we can to support and help them get through this tough time. Well, those are great sentiments to, to end off our interview today. I, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to break from that sunshine in Miami to speak <laughs> to us. And, um, and hopefully the next two weeks, things get better here and we can start seeing what you're seeing in Miami transferred to, uh, to Canada. So stay strong and stay safe and uh, look forward to seeing you in Toronto soon. Thank you. I, I look forward to you dining at our restaurant, the chef bar and me cooking for you and uh, us not having to wear masks and, and get back to some form of normalcy. Sounds wonderful. Stay well. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.
We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.